0: Welcome to Smileys. We are reading Forge of Darkness by Steven Erickson as part of our read-along and today we are covering chapters 3 and 4 and if you join now, this is just the summary episode where we are just going uh, through each chapter line by line and just discussing them as we go and I'm Mora and joining me is my friend and co-host Lee, how are you?
1: Hello, I'm doing pretty good. What about you?
0: I'm okay. So. After multiple attempts, we have sat down for this episode today. Yeah. And
1: <laughs> Fate headed in for us.
0: <clears throat> yeah, no, we are extremely well prepared, I think. No?
1: That is true. That is one of the perks of having to, you know, skip it like three times. So. so.
0: Was it fun? Chapters three and
1: four? Fun isn't necessarily the word that you used to describe chapter three and four. Well, four maybe. Four probably. Four three, is fun. Three not so much.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Three is um, definitely Gorkana's like... It's deep philosophical dour, poetic. Yeah. Do
0: you and um, yeah, oh, sure.
1: yeah, yeah, no, no, go on, go on. you see. No, no, something. I mean we we have a whole two chapters to go through. And I've written like three point two gay words, so. <clears throat> Thus begins chapter three. We are in Hout residence, on the northwestern borders of the Jagodan. We are watching the world through the eyes of a young Thai hostage with a somewhat familiar name, Corey Delath. Corey is young. Like, late teens, young.
0: Eighteen. Eighteen. She has two late years teens, more. Late teens, yeah.
1: And still has fond memories of playing with dolls and acting like a young goddess Though, them. So she gives us a quick geography lesson. She hails from a barra, a ticed settlement held by a lesser house, Delac, and from her airy, curiously named Aerie by Cor... Gori- the spelling, you'll find the spelling in the book, uh, by Goria. She can gaze out upon the plains and the empty city of, Om- of Omdus-Falak, the and contested territories, and so on. Coria, not unlike the doll she keeps, has been pretty much a shut-in for quite a long time. How is fairly strict in his education, possibly Coria thinks due to a misunderstanding of the ticed custom of hostages, and there have been more than a few parallels to be made between Coria and her dolls, which keep coming back throughout the book. Today, however, is different. Since the pack of Jalarkin veered into hounds, or Jalarkin, I don't know, how do you pronounce it?
0: I just say Jalarkin.
1: Okay, Jalarkin works. Um, is approaching Hout's Temesne, the mains, the mains. Coria has a bad feeling about this. What other reason for the trespassing, if not to claim these lands for themselves? And that feeling is only reinforced when Hout comes out bedecked in full martial gear, gear that she's never seen him before wear. The two parties meet, and much to Coria's surprise, Hout begins laughing and laughing. The sound is so alien to her that the Tiest world is rocked. Nothing seems right about this. The Jalak veer back to their humanoid forms, and Hout bellows to her that guests have arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any comment?
0: <laughs> no, the jacket has guests, that's all. Yeah. I don't think there's more to be said there.
1: Yeah. Um... Cory agrees with you, because uh, how rarely, if ever, has guests. They didn't have servants, or cooks, or any of that. Corey had has had to learn to take care of the home everyday needs as part of her um, education, which she somewhat doubts its veracity. In the meantime, she reminisces on the lessons Hout imparted her on her about the dragon, which is a very interesting little bit, which you can find in the book. Solitary people that dissolved their own civilization when it became too successful when they themselves realized it was unsustainable and attainable. They just stopped talking to each other. Completely. Their once flourishing city is now home to but one individual, the lord of hate, who is the instigator behind the solution.
0: When you say instigator, he just pointed out that this is what is happening. Fine. Go on. Go on. That's all.
1: You could dispute this? Okay, well. <clears throat> the Jalarkan have brought foodstuffs Raw, of course, their hounds uh, And the group has sat down to feast Coria is further unbalanced by this Hout has usually far too prude in such matters He is borderline unhinged here For a household that never had guests Save for a few solitary jacket for a night or two reigniting an old argument Hout seems but that, very well-versed that, but, in such matters Yes?
0: Sorry, that bit I find it so funny Like suddenly a random jacket comes argues something and leaves in the middle of the night, and then Hout is like put off for like a few days. <laughs>
1: yeah. Just jagged things. <laughs> One of the Jalek warriors makes an odd statement which catches Cory's attention. He names Hout Captain, which is a title which is almost entirely unbecoming of the jagged. To Cory's knowledge, they never had an army. Hout mentions the Tite's renowned temper, but Cory does not buckle under the prodding of the Jalek and wishes to be excused. Out declines, saying that the are here for her. Uh
0: Just one thing about the fourteen jacket we see in uh, Cripple God. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they call? Uh, what do they call each other? There, they're like, are they a band or is there a leader for them or how? How does it go? I don't want to spoil. It, that's why I'm asking vaguely. Tell me about the four, fourteen jacket. No, we can't. I don't. Rem- okay. I don't
1: remember. I don't ah. actually know where you're going.
0: No, I just want to know. Like, uh, are those fourteen like just friends or do they call each other some titles oh, or?
1: They are an army. Yeah. Okay. You know, the army that fought death and stuff, but they're dead, so... <laughs> <laughs> we're getting to that as well. Just don't worry, we'll get to that. Um, in the meantime, for the darkness, Cory's mind is racing. Hout in martial accoutrements, being addressed as captain, having guests, here, her... None of this made sense to her. Hostages weren't given to soldiers, and the jagged were not soldiers besides. Had a mistake being made. Uh, Rusk, the Jalek spokesman, is having a discussion with Hout in the meantime while Corey is thinking. This happens a lot in the books where just people are thinking and then someone like interjects with a the conversation, they've missed like half of it. And like, oh, what the fuck is he saying? It's very yeah. uh,
0: and I know that you personally find it extremely fun, isn't it? For some reason, yeah. you just enjoy conversations with just <laughs> where half is lost. Go on, go on. <clears throat>
1: Um, yeah, Rusk, so Hout is uh, having uh, attention yeah. with Rusk, and there are certain implicit threats being made. The Jalek wants something from Hout in return for guarantees of peace. Rusk points out that the Jagged have no army to speak of, um, and should the Jalek wish it, they could ransack their territories. Hout responds, they could very easily destroy them, should they wish to do so. It's gradually revealed that the Jalek are here to take Korya back girl Galen in... <laughs> return for their absolution with their responsibility to send hostages their own blood following their defeat at the hands of the taist you wanted to say something
0: that that is just such a dumb idea <laughs> that you need a hostage so you just <laughs> pick somebody and just give it to them <laughs> I, I think Hart puts it very nicely that you can't just borrow someone's hostage and give it to them
1: <laughs> something like that yeah yeah
0: yeah
1: so yeah the intellect as Mora mentioned, are very apprehensive about giving up their own young as hostages. So, Coria steps in at house-prodding to lecture the Jalek as to her position. She's not a slave, she's a hostage. She's bound by strictures and the like to a fallen people. She will be returned within two years' time. She's fine. Does not chafe. It is what it is. Sagral does not take well to this and snaps at her. She's a slave no but name, wasting away her youth here to a fallen people doomed to dissolution. Coria puts him down by saying that he needs a leash, and everybody bursts out laughing. <laughs> the tension resumes, though, because the Diced, who are demanding 50 Jelek hostages, are heading the Civil War. Hout says that the hostages will be protected regardless, but the Jalek don't buy into it. And because the Jalek, unlike the Jagat, have actually lived through a Civil War, and Hout seems awfully naive in believing that they will be protected because strictures and stuff, it's interesting.
0: Oh, I was on yeah. Hout's side. I thought the hostages will be protected and sent back and all that. That's what I was assuming. No. How?
1: I mean, it is a civil war. There's nothing civil about it.
0: We'll, well, we'll get
1: there. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> this is a doomed realm anyway. <clears throat> so, Hout doesn't buy it because Mother Dark's power, unlike that of the Jalek, is not inherently chaotic. They're not sold. She is not soul She draws power from something else, which is not as... Bound to drive her and the dyes into chaos, whatever else up here. Um, but the Dajelic are not planning to give up their young, no matter the cost, and if Coria is their way out, and Howard believes she isn't, then so be it. At their demands to release Coria, Howard elaborates. He has educated her, trained her, and made her a vessel for future use. Reasonably, this terrifies Coria. But, um... How does not actually bother to elaborate, instead telling the Jalek that they live with a dawn, they don't even bother to wait for dawn, with one last exchange of insults, they depart. How is does planning to awaken sorcery to cleanse the place, but Coria's question startles him. She does not feel at peace with the absence within her. She is not empty inside, Howard agrees, because he didn't expect her to feel peace. In absence there is yearning, and Coria does indeed yearn for something as yet lost.
0: No, Nothing? no points. Yeah, okay. no, no, it's fine. But it's something I liked. It uh, just, it's just nice. Yeah.
1: No, mm. well, something is not nice. So, yeah. Um. Anyway, we are in the bar of the lock, <laughs> where Coria hails from, uh, with Lady Nerissa Corlet. No, oh, familiar surname. How nice. Mm. Mistress of the House of Dracorlas, Uh, her bloodline is frail and veiling, and her house is also failing. Quite literally, because her stables just burned down, and there's only one horse left. Yay! Um, she looks up on Orphantel.
0: Another familiar her, name. Yeah. This her grandson. The, this is the drinking yeah. game we should have, right? Every familiar name, you should, should take a shot.
1: I mean, we'd probably be dead within two episodes now.
0: No, but we're spreading it out. But anyway, oh, yeah. we're just we're just drinking water. So. <laughs>
1: True enough. Yeah, she looks up on Orphantel, her grandson, incidentally, a, a bastard son, and thinks back to Galant's. Words, hey, he's here too. Um, from his latest collection, Aldi nicknamed his Days of Skinning, which pissed off most of the nobles in Coral Gallen, and that is what we call a humble brag.
0: I know, this is such, such a, you know, Gallan is his humble. own How best,
1: you... yeah. He is he's his just... own best hype man, and I'm here for it.
0: No, he's just a sales pitch, he's just trying to sell more copies. Days oh, yeah, of Skinning. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> So, Nerys is, to put it bluntly, ambitious, and her ambition, combined with how Girl Galeen's society is structured to begin with, f- forces her to make some hard choices, most of which are to the detriment of her immediate family, and I think you may realize by now that I don't particularly like the Nershtri Orland.
0: Are you not even going to, like, expand on it? Are you just going to say that, this just...
1: Oh, I will expand on it later, don't worry. There's, there's more yet to come. So, case in point her desire to expunge the idealism and romance from Morphenthal's mind. The boy would often replicate scenes of heroism followed by betrayal, always betrayal, as he had learned from the endless tales and rumors from the tized wars. Nair's husband was one of the soldiers that fought in said wars, a distinguished soldier meaning that he survived, which is already an accomplishment, returning home to his beloved family, only to commit suicide within a month. When her husband arrived home, she was already dead to him, a harsh reality contrasting all historically with an idealized form which he'd propped up during the endless monotony of the wars, and Nerys never forgave him for that. She thinks back to another soldier who seduced her daughter, Sandalath and Sire Dorfenthal. Take a shot now, please. <laughs> yeah. uh, another old veteran that disgusted her, he'd lied about his war stories and managed to get sand to his bed which only managed to further doom the already feeling bloodline she kept this... him drunk and hidden away in a tavern and you may notice that nerys isn't the best person in the world
0: okay uh, this Sandalath being Orphantel's mother is this a reveal or do we already no. know this
1: no we, we know that yeah
0: we know that from before the... right yeah because it's all just uh, yeah go on go on with your nearest bashing
1: yeah Sandalath is leaving soon for House Dracons. she is to be a hostage once more, the last time was to House Pyrrhic before its dissolution and incorporation by Brother Dark, and Nerys advises her not to bid Orphandal farewell because the boy needs to cling to his dreams and delusions. Yikes. He is destined for Garkalas after all, and though Sandalath is unaware of this detail, and we can have a boy too attached to his mother I? I'm I'm gonna stop. <laughs> Uh, Neris <laughs> has made an entire backstory up and everything. In the meantime, it's time for Santa to go. The carriage has arrived and the procession is led by Master at Arms I think, Ivis. I think
0: this is a good point to interrupt you uh, yeah. regarding Neris doing all these things for Orphanter and Sandalath and all that. Yeah, I think you had just a small throwaway phrase of how the society is structured. Do You want to tell me how that society is structured in the Tiesed society? Well.
1: There is a very strict and rigid house system and different, like, noble families and noble classes. And um, it is not necessarily expected, but, like, heavily, like, required, I suppose, to climb the hierarchy of nobility in order to maintain prestige. And to fall from grace would be catastrophic for everybody involved.
0: There's also this streak of uh, patriarchy, which we don't really see in the rest of the Malazal. Like, why is there such a stigma with bastard sons? Unless you know, you're bringing in some misogyny somewhere. That that's the uh, impression I got. Because we see lots of bastards mm. throughout. Oh, yes. Interrupt me. We see no, no, all and on. all that, and those are not really the stigma. Is not that you know the the child has an unknown father or the father is not known or, or any of those. The, the stigma doesn't reach the child or the mother. Here there is so much stigma because Sandalath got pregnant with some rando and then. he... As a son, as a single mother, as a teen pregnant, all those things—it—it it feels quite patri- patriarchal to me. No? I don't
1: think it's so much down to being patriarchal as much as it's just down to how people are treated, because blood is a big part of what makes someone in Coral Galen, and someone being a bastard means that they don't have noble blood. Yeah, so they're but... lesser.
0: No, in the sense, uh, see the there is no shame attached to Galdan, right? The 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 drunk- I, I don't know how to say that name. The, for the father mm-hmm. there is no shame attached to him or anything he's just kept as a drunk yeah but the all the repercussions are with with this you know the one the, the woman and the child so
1: I think the very same would be true for if a guy hired like a battered son just the thing is the blame would almost always fall well from within the family anyway from the general perspective I think the blame would fall on like the seducer whoever that might be which yes more often than not is the woman in the relationship. But, um in this case I think it's just down to because the bloodline is failing and orphan is a bastard, he cannot be legitimized unless they pull some strings, which would be politically expedient and difficult. And so it's like not so much oh you couldn't um keep it in your pants as much as it is you doomed our family and that's bad because you know it's it then do you see the problem? Like this society is not great, so you
0: know. It's not it's not yeah, <laughs> Yeah, no, because, I, mean, yeah. I don't know. It just keeps coming up again and again that the whole why does she have. We'll come to it, isn't it? That why did Mother Dark take a concert? I think we'll, we'll keep asking that question again and again.
1: So, yeah, it's technically not Neris being completely terrible. It's the society being completely terrible. That's
0: what I want you to tell. Me. Yeah, that's what but I was saying. is also know.
1: pretty god awful, so I'm not going to forgive her for that. Moving on. <laughs> so, yeah. My uh, carriage arrives to pick up sand uh, driven by Master's Arms Ivis from House Dragons. Uh, he's escorted by a troop of soldiers that's stationed outside of Baradalac in a non-too-subtle gesture that hey, I know you're kind of on bad times, but we still respect your borders, you know? Friends, don't interrupt me in the civil war, please, please? Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Alas, uh, the carriage leaves and Orphanthal is nowhere to be found, which pleases Nares, because, you know, there's a bit of a... <clears throat> no, I'll stop. I, I said I'll stop. I'll stop. Okay, So, uh, Unfortunately, however, Orphan Doll you know, is that's... not nowhere to be found.
0: In the future? And, yes. Let me know but... all the nearest chapters in future. I'll take all of them.
1: Sure. Be my guest. <clears throat> so there, there's a, a more than a little depressing perspective of a child watching his mother leave. Fun. Um, he gives us a very interesting insight for being five, uh, a very interesting insight about uh, wounds from past wars, because he claims that um, often a knife that followed men that should have died days, weeks, or even months ago follows people from the wars into their home, and they eventually die, just like it did his grandfather. Which is a very interesting allegory for you know the trauma of war. Again, for a five-year-old. I um, mean. <clears throat>
0: It's a five-year-old's words being told by yeah Galan being told by Fisher, so obviously. it's fine. It's
1: fine. Um, there is also a very interesting image of Nereus bringing up that Orphantals day ends when like the kitchen bell rings, and then the same it happens here, like the yeah. call comes and like world must end, and so he stops musing on like death and war and stuff, and like oh yeah, my mom's gone, but at least you get the idea. Uh, and as is par for the chorus, we need to have a Sandalath perspective. Okay, very It's with
0: me. fine, it's fine. Okay. Poor Sandalath.
1: I didn't say she's not poor Sandalath. I said I just don't really... I cannot really... say
0: you did not say that she's poor Sandalath.
1: Laugh. <laughs> anyway, poor Sandalath. Laugh. <laughs> so, Sand is uh, quite literally clad in tradition. She is wearing her entire wardrobe. She's in a carriage with its only airway is a speak box leading outside. The air in the carriage is stale. What?
0: Why is she in a closed carriage like that? To hide her from this guy, this drunk guy. He should not find out that she's leaving, isn't it? I
1: That's guess. What I
0: thought. Yeah, it's a secret. I don't know. She's being sent in secret, yeah.
1: Okay. Alright, um, so, the air within the carriage is stale, which leads Sandlot to believe she's hallucinating, which she very well might be, when she sees Orfantel among the burned stables. She's making as much of an effort as possible to not disappoint Neris, and so she tries to sit absolutely still, a perfect rendition of all that is wrong with Coral Galleon's hostage system and traditions. Yay! <laughs> so, as Sanol is slowly dying of heatstroke, her imagination carries her away to a faraway time, when she was a hostage in the Little for House Purake. As has become the norm by now, she was fascinated in a childlike manner, perhaps by the sons of Nemander Purake, especially so by Namander. No shit. As with Histula, the wars took them away from Sand, and what removed, and want return, it was not the Stoic, 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 uh, poo stolid, stoic, immovable wall that she leaned on, but a broken, crippled man whose sons were still out there, possibly dead. a possibility had absolutely terrified Sand. <clears throat> her return to Abara was no better. When she had left, it was a flourishing domain of the border of making house to call a greater house. Upon her return, most people, as the Cambridge man put it later, either died off, wandered away, or wandered off and died. Her father had taken his life, so, the story San relates is that he did a sepsis, because, as aforementioned, Neris is a great person, um, but her father was never quite known to her. Neris was, again, not the greatest person in the world, and thus San's father was little more than a faithless figure, bound to her by blood than any actual relation. <clears throat> you have something to
0: add? No, no, I, yeah. I'm just rolling my eyes at you, okay. bashing Neris again and again. Yeah. That's Thank you. <laughs>
1: So, um I swear like there's like one more, I swear to God. There's one more line, which I should on there so that's all. Um so following her father's death, Sand found herself in the arms of an old one armed soldier who gave her a new life, a way out. Just a
0: just way repeat into it. A world. Can you, can yes. you just repeat it? Where does Sand find herself?
1: In the arms of an old one armed soldier. I'm not <laughs> fun, not intended. <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah. Um <clears throat> This Go on, ties... not... I'm gonna pretend it's... it ties back into Galdon's perspective about having two arms. It makes sense to us. Totally intentional. Anyway, uh, He gave her a new life, he gave her a way out, a way into a world that she'd only caught glimpses of in the Citadel. Mm-hmm. Galdon's world was a lie, we know this, but San you know better, and frankly, I think the lie was much better than the... Okay, there may be two lines where right? I shouldn't notice, anyway. Um, yeah, I think the lie was much better than the, than the hand Neris told her. You know, you're gonna be a hostage to that guy, then that guy, then that guy. Anyway, Sand, in turn, would give Orphanetal glimpses of this world, a world of heroes and romance, of boundless idealism and beauty. In those glimpses, she had, remained Galda- she had remade Galden, in the guise of Anamander, down to the physical futures, but also other heroes of her youth, from her dad, to Andris, to Sulkas, to Demander, to whomever. And gave Galdan a hero's death, betrayed from behind by an enemy's rival. And that's why Orphantel would reenact the same stories time and again. I'm gonna skip the last line because it's more near his and I think you could deal with him.
0: Go but, on, you know? go on. It's okay. You just typed it. Why not just say <laughs> no, it? No, 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 no. It's fine. No, it's okay. No, no. You can't. You can't, like.
1: <laughs> I'm biting away. Anyway.
0: He's oh, um, serious. Okay.
1: Sandalas is on the border of fainting repeat stroke, and as the carriage comes to a halt, she's hallucinating so much that she's about to just drop dead. Just bad. Um, so I was just fitting bricks at the mere possibility that Santa might die on his hands, and Draconta's gesture to take in the last scion of a fading bloodline could just backfire horribly. Uh, while his gesture was very political in nature, it would obviously be taken very badly. Draconius has no intention to alienate himself further from the Nobleborn, and this was supposed to achieve the opposite of that. Make an ally, not kill the only ally he still has. Um, so, Ibis bribes and slash over threatens the coachman to not speak a word of what happened, and then sends him on his way. Uh, luckily for our master at arms, Sandal has not dead. Uh, she has merely fainted. Big surprise. Gets, yeah. yeah, big, yeah. Um, she comes around, but not before the troop takes a look into her strong box. And the strong box contains stones. Lots of stones. Their box is filled with stones. And at this point I'm thinking, is this a metaphor for something? Or is this like, actually just used stones? Um, these oh, well, stones, as we later learn, yeah. Yeah.
0: they are yeah.
1: stones from the shores of the river. They're from Rill, and they are meant to signal a love. And San has a box of them.
0: It's from the same guy.
1: It's from the same guy. And, um, <coughs> I'm not gonna ask Naris. I'm, I'm just to You can. <clears throat> why
0: not? Free speech. You so have free speech.
1: I, <laughs> so, yeah, was informed Sand of what happened. She fainted. Uh, and they had to stop by the side of the road. They'll ride the rest of the way because the carriage can't go any further. And, well, she more or less showers her with white lies. Like, they have yeah. no idea what was in the box. But it yeah, is yeah, heavy. Yeah. He's sure that it must be toiletry because he has a daughter on her same age. Sand looks kind of unconvinced, but she is in no position to argue further. Uh, one guy from his troop, Silen, uh <laughs> makes a wry comment about um, yeah, Ivis' the... daughter.
0: Yeah, and, like, yeah.
1: You know, God help, Abyss help us if the daughter looks into like you. Um, And uh, yeah. I don't think I need to tell you that Ivis does not actually have a daughter. But yeah, good guy Ivis.
0: Yeah, he is.
1: Now, of course, we're not actually quite done with the depressing BOVs yet. Cue Galdan. The
0: last depressing, the last. The last depressing
1: BOE. So, uh, Galdan is a miserable little pile of regrets. He regrets his (laughs) love for Sandalath. He regrets not killing said love. He regrets his lies. He regrets his drinking habits. He regrets fighting. He regrets a lot of things. Uh, For a miserable drunk. Galdan is awfully self-conscious, which at the same time makes him very sympathetic, but also miserable. Um, He knows that all the reasons he puts forth for his kind of predicament are nothing but failed excuses. He knows Nerys is behind the supply of wine and women, and he knows that he is being watched and his movements are being reported to her, and Galden is past caring because Sandal has gone. He knows also that Sand has taken the stones which he's left for her, for all he knows, he threw her, threw them away. We know better, there um, is <clears throat>
0: Yeah. For all he knows, sorry.
1: Uh, for all he knows, San has forgotten about him entirely, and um, has while she has taken the stones that he has left for him, well, for her, right. she could have just thrown them out to keep refuge. There is a very poignant parallel and uh, some allegories about it. Two, two good men having two good hands, one to keep things close, and the other to push them away. And Galdon has lost his hand with which to push things away. And so he drowns in excess, and it's just very sad, and there's just a bit...
0: <clears throat> oh my god, oh god.
1: Last one, I, prom- I promise, I promise promise. I'm you.
0: so glad we didn't do things like Felicin or anything. What?
1: Why? <laughs> Why would I bash Felicin?
0: I don't know, you're bashing me, they're both, you know, victims of the system.
1: Are we serious like a Nearest Corlat no, in Feliz and right now? No,
0: no. but okay. Nearest right. deserves some sympathy. I mean, you can't just keep... Okay. Maybe some sympathy, know. but five that does not make her any better. <laughs> <clears throat> Calling okay. her a bitch for five times in half a chapter is, is a bit is a bit extra.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I didn't use that word specifically for five times. I know you did
0: not use that, but we, we all heard it.
1: <laughs> I'm not going to uh, bold for that, I'm sorry. Um, anyhow, we now, and we're back Not for technical issues, so, uh, we were getting at that we had just finished the depressing POVs, and we're actually about to get into interesting POVs, which I particularly enjoyed. So yeah, Corey is fun, these two are fun, the middle point isn't, but, uh, <coughs> at long last we get into my preferred part of this chapter, which is, um, the duo of Galarberas and Kilaras.
0: You'll have to like, uh, say yeah. their names clearly, because Galar, Galar. Balas, and Kalaras, yeah, yeah. everything sounds It's going to like get very yeah.
1: confusing, because like a, there's a Galar Barris, there's a Grip Gallus, there's a Kalaras, there's Bursa, there's Bered, there's so many different names that sound so similar. I'm going to fuck them yeah. up eventually, so bear with me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, Galar is a member of the Hust Legion, and he is riding to Hust and Rold's hold. Hust and Rold being the master of the Hust. Forges. So, and he's thinking a lot. So, in this instance, he's thinking about the thing. seeing as not long ago, he was spitting them on his sword, and uh, their notions of justice. There's a justice that brings order through violence and threat, imposing peace in the name of order. Gallo agrees, it should be the other way around, because this particular line of reasoning hides within it inherent contradictions. Contradictions that also incidentally plague Vath in the last chapter. To make a long story short, Galar Barris rips the Forlokhan notion of Dress as a new one, and it's delectable. (laughs) In the meantime, further backstory, what came to be known as the Hot Legion was a contingent of the South border swords, and first came into contact with the Forloken and almost, almost, broke, until the Hoth resupply, upon which they were, as the name implies, resupplied by the Hoth's forges, with new blades. Galar has spent quite a bit of time studying his swords and think he under- thinks he now understands part of the terminology used by the weaponsmiths and what it means for the blade. To make another long story short, he and most if not all of his soldiers in the Hutt Legion believe that the swords are alive. <laughs> so, his thoughts circle back to the present, for he is in the company of Galaris, captain of the House Blades of House Curic. Zed House is effectively defunct since the Death of uh, it has been incorporated into the, ma- into the domains of Mother Dark, with all its servants and scions taking on the name of Andy, Children of Night. Kelaris' presence is not particularly surprising to Galar. His lord, Anamander, is no stranger to the Hus swords or their insistent shrieking, and was one of the few nobleborn to personally congratulate the Hus Legion in a gesture that won over the hearts of most of the border swords present. That day, the Hus Legion became Children of Night. Alas, that did not bode very well with the soldiers of Yurisandr's Legion, which got effectively shafted following the wars, with its ranks left in a limbo of reserve ranks <coughs> while the hosts were maintained and reversed. And revered, rather. According to Taurus Redone, Galar barracks commander and occasional lover... Occasional lover...
0: Occasional? One time. I don't know. Was it occasional? Mm-hmm. I thought it was a... Well, it one was time. a
1: one-time thing, but it's implied to be, you know, whenever they have the courage to do so.
0: To get drunk, yeah. Yeah, well my bell.
1: My boy Galar does not get drunk.
0: Well, she she gets drunk, yeah.
1: Or no, she gets wasted.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So according to Thoras Redone, peace had become a disaster. Nowadays, however, his regrets about not pursuing Taurus further, notwithstanding, Galar's allegiance to the City of Harkanas for the Host Legion. The two of them, Galar and Galaris, are riding in silence to the Host Forges, but Galar isn't particularly interested in opening up conversation. In his time in Garkonas, has since found out that the rift between the Hust and the Kural Legions uh, nay, legion? is but one of many. Draconis has become the focal point for uh, contention and tensions in Kuril Galane, and nobody seemed to be able, or willing, to defuse the tension. At last, at least, <coughs> Gala reflects, should things come to a head, Mother Dark will step in to avert civil war, because the alternative, even if that requires turning her back on Draconus. Because the alternative would be turning her back on her children, that shed blood in the name of the realm, and who would dare do that?
0: Nobody. Nobody. Absolutely nobody.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Kalaras evidently does not have the highest opinions of Kalarbaras. Uh, rumors among the, warden, the wardens of the Citadel have it that the hust blades would poison the minds of their wielders. And incidentally, all the Warders in the Citadel are veterans of standard Legion. And looking upon the man riding at his side, Kilaras is inclined to agree. Kalaras is young, far too young to have lost sight of joy the way he seems to have now. He wasn't very much liked in the city, nobody accompanied him, nobody spoke to him, nobody invited him to events. Regardless, Kalaras is here in official business. He has a missive from Anamander for Lord Hastenerald, and he will deliver that missive. Whether or not the presence of Kalarbaras is a calculated insult or otherwise... Is relevant, if slightly irritating, to Kilaras. Galar breaks the silence by inquiring as to the missive. omissive. perhaps more than a little apprehensive towards him, replies in a snap, somewhat snappy way. The conversation is somewhat fraught with tension before Kilarus breaks the tension and directly asks, Why is Galaras courting him? The latter responds that, well, he was a border sword before he became the soldier of the Hust Legion and he is not a man well suited to the Citadel. Kalaras realizes quite quickly that he has misunderstood the man, and that indeed, a young man is riding at his side. He gambles by pulling rank on Galar, which is not something he can technically do, but if Galar is indeed chafing under... Uh, chafing in Kirkhanous, he'll quite eagerly accept, and he does, and the two of them ride into the gates. Prior to their arrival within the manor, Kalaras lets Galar know why he's here. Lord Anamander has commissioned the host Blade.
0: Exactly. And then
1: they were through the gates. The die is cast.
0: Oh, nice.
1: So that was a summary. <clears throat> a summary, yeah. Perhaps um a bit more apprehensive towards nervous to Coral than was desired or required, but.
0: That's okay. You can't summarize a summary. objectively. You have to, like.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Can you can you summarize anything objective? Me? No. You, yeah, no no, no,
1: no, no, no.
0: Yeah. So shall we start with chapter four? Do you have anything to add?
1: I don't believe so. <laughs> Beyond um if you're listening, go back and read Gallar Barris' introducing thoughts about the Forolgan because that's fascinating.
0: I think we can uh, but talk about it in the yeah. part two in sure. the discussion. Sure. Yeah. Because I don't think we have much of other things to talk there, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, shall we start? Sure. Shall we go to chapter four? Do you know where we have to go? We have to go far to uh, the west. Glimmerfade. To Glimmerfade, yeah.
1: East, northeast.
0: Sorry. East, oh good, yeah, it's east. Yeah, sorry. It's, <laughs> oh my god. Right, so it's in the east, and we are very far away from the cities and all, you know, aspects of civilization, because uh, this is the border of the realm, and it's next to the sea of it's next to the vitreous sea. Okay? That's how I'm Nailed going to it. say it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. How do you say it?
1: No, no, yeah, vitter. Well, it's difficult to pronounce because I like, you know, but vitter would be my pronunciation.
0: I would say vitre, probably. Anyway, yeah. it's the vitreous sea, and uh, the word means glass. We looked it up. So uh, and here so it you didn't have to. <laughs> and it's described as a calm, uh, usually silvery kind of sea, which has a mottled appearance sometimes. I initially thought the word vitriment meant acid because, you know, the description makes it seem as if there are like toxic fumes coming off of it. That even stones which are exposed to the sea tend to get like uh, worn away. They get obliterated. So it's a very toxic place. And next to the shore, uh, next to the sea, there is a shore. And beyond the shore, there is a kind of vegetation called black grass, right? It's a type of sharp bladed grass that thrives in this place. And there is no rains. It's quite hot. But still, this grass grows there. And, you know, when I say sharp bladed grass, I literally mean it is sharp. Like, it can cut through flesh. So, they have to use, like, wooden armor on the horses to ride in these among these, horses, in the, among these grasses. And who is riding horses in this godforsaken land? They are the, board, the wardens. I would have said border swords. I keep thinking these are border swords because this is at the border. But no. Remember, these are wardens of the outer reach, right? So, these guys, uh, their job is basically to patrol the shore. And keep a watch on the vitre because this sea has been seen to be slowly expanding and eroding into their lands. I'm not exactly sure what the game plan is that once they see that the vitre is expanding, but they just stay there and keep a watch on it. Yeah? Probably just tell everyone to like run or something, maybe. You know, the eastern sea is rising, go west or something. Anyway, so these guys, though they are warriors, <laughs> I have to sorry. They dress in silk because it's hot. Anything you wanna say? No? Right, So it's quite hot. It's a hot place. And so silk works best. And because of the toxicity of the vitre fumes, they can't wear leather or iron or anything because it corrodes everything. And so this is a scene. So this is where we are. And we are interested in a small group of three tyst who are patrolling the area. These three are uh, two people from House Durav. One is called Farrow Hend and the other is called Spinnock. Take a shot. Yeah. And the third person is the captain and... <laughs> she is from the Hust and her name is Finara Stone. Yeah, she is Hust General's daughter. So, uh, when we first see them, uh, Spinach is sitting and doing what? Mm-hmm. He's sharpening his blade. Ah, <laughs> right. And yeah, that's his signature move. So he has his sword, and he's constantly taking care of it. And the one time he doesn't take care of it in hounds is when. Never mind. Just tell me, we, I
1: don't remember. Just tell me.
0: Oh, you don't remember? It's the one time that the high priestess notices and says that you didn't take care of his sword, and because he's distracted thinking about selling. So
1: hmm.
0: I think so. This is as far as I remember. I could be wrong. So, <laughs> so right. So there is Spinnak sitting and uh, sharpening his sword, and he's using one of those uh, stones which were, you know, which have been eroded by the vitre, because apparently the vitre infuses a kind of uh, invincibility to the sword. And this is said to be pointedly, we are told that this is an ancient husk sword and so it is silent. Swords have to be silent, right? So right, lots of POV changes in this chapter, so bear with me. The first one is hend She thinks to herself that there are so few tithes who take up this job in uh, becoming the wardens and that's good because not many are insane enough to do this job and <laughs> she thinks that she's thinking about the mystery of the victory because... Who knows, you know, what is happening and why is it eroding and all that. And she thinks that maybe the Azathanai and I have some answers, but the Thai scholars are, you know, um, not nice exactly. I think yeah, she xenophobic.
1: calls them xenophobic and, yeah, xenophobic and very close-minded. I don't remember.
0: And who value ignorance uh, yeah. over knowledge. So so there's no chance of these Thai guys reaching out to the and, I and finding answers. There is a chance that we, maybe the Forul can have some answers, but all their war spoils are currently with uh, Lord Urusandir who is not exactly a STEM guy, he wants to know about law and justice and he's, he's least interested about finding and, out what... Uh, uh, to I
1: think do. the quote goes, uh, maybe he'll stumble upon some revelation about the winter, but would he even notice?
0: Would he notice? Yeah. 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 He's not a STEM guy. You can't blame him. And uh, she knows, Farrah knows that even though they have like this lengthy lifespan, they are running out of time with regard to the vitre erosion. I don't know if they've calculated it or something, but it is going to erode and it might be within their long life, they'll be able to see the vitre actually expanding and whatever, the ties are running out of time. And that's when Spinek makes a comment that uh, the stone from the vitre is helping, uh, you know, helping the edge or something. And what does that happen? What does it lead to? Farron goes into a mini, mini spiral about how much she's attracted to this guy. And you do you know what is stopping her from acting on this attraction? Is it the fact that she's 11 years older? Huh? Is it that she's already engaged to someone else? No. Is it that because he's very young, like barely into manhood? No. Stop laughing. Can you guess what stops it? They're cousins and the bloodline is too close. Like children of brothers and sisters should not mingle. That is a ticed, uh, I don't know, a ticed rule. So that's the reason she is. She's tempted, but she's not acting on it. And Galan, self-insert again here. There is one more poem saying, she thinks to herself that the ground is bare and hard and will hold all secrets, but the sky cares not for the games of those beneath it, right? So this is how she's acknowledging her temptation and thinking that we're so far from civilization, like, who cares Nobody will
1: know if I shag my cousin.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Galen is saying there, right? So, <clears throat> and this is when she starts thinking about how poetry works, like, uh, Galan's, especially Galan's poems. I can't believe the arrogance of this guy. Like, he says... His poems contain truths that, you know, seem to like personally speak to everyone who reads them because they're able to add their own flavor to it and make it relatable to themselves. And Farrell, being, being Pharaoh, she thinks that poetry is like magical. Anyway, spinach is still thinking about the witch and trying to make small talk. So he says that the Azat and I have like rare vessels that can hold, you know, part of the witch in it, like made of stone or something. And Pharaoh just <laughs> wonders why anyone wants to collect that stuff. Right? Good point. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a really good point, yeah. What, what are the Asratanay doing with the vitri stuff, right? Like carrying it in pots and doing what? So um, so now we come to some flirting. <laughs> the Thais level flirting. This is how it happens. Uh, because she asked him, like, why would anyone want to collect this stuff? Spinak goes, Mother Dark is the answer, right? And Farora agrees, yeah. The galen also says the same thing. And then Spinnock asks, Oh, beautiful cousin, tell me. And, you know, for a second, she's not able to respond because he called her beautiful. And then she goes on, like, in unrelieved darkness waits every answer. This is what Galan has said. It, it doesn't mean much. It's just a sentence. In unrelieved darkness waits every answer. So obviously Spinek says, I don't get it. I don't understand what you mean. She says, you learn, you're like, you know, you're still, you're still young, you learn. And then he says, oh, no, I'm not that older. Than, oh, you know, you're not that older than me or something. And then, yeah, Farrar has had enough. She changes the topic. She says, let us set camp. Finara will be back. Our captain is coming back. So light a fire or something. And then Spinek says, oh, so there is no unrelieved darkness today. So we're not going to find any answers today. (laughs) Right? And Farrar just goes, oh, you actually got what the poem meant. So this is their flirting. And with this, we stop. We leave them to setting up their camp. And shall we move to Captain Finara Stone? Who is? My initial read, I swear, Farad and Finara Stone were the same person. But now I'm able to see uh, that they're not.
1: Yeah. I made a very think... painful mistake confusing with her, so
0: when was this? Uh,
1: so I can't get into it because spoilers, but spoilers.
0: Okay. We'll uh, keep it for uh, the yeah. discussion.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <coughs> so did you like spoil somebody's experience of the book? No, 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 no,
1: were... no. Oh. I I like there was a post on the sub and I confused the two in a very oh, humiliating good. manner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good. So okay, yeah, I so... can
1: relate to that yeah.
0: But no, this this is fine because now it's quite clear that there we have to read it at this space. That's that's what we don't do, Lee. That is the whole point. <laughs> okay, so Captain Finara Stone is walking along the vitres. Sometimes she goes away on her own. Just tell me if you need a break or something.
1: No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. I have a quote I wanna find.
0: Oh, okay. So anyway, on the shoreline she sees that there is an interesting headless carcass. It's quite huge. And it seems to have washed up from the witch, which is something that highly unexpected, right? And most of its flesh has already been devoured by the sea. And it's like both broken bones and headless. And it's just lying there and it is still trying to crawl away. It's not like exactly at peace. And it's quite massive. It has a thick tail, but there are no wings. Even she has heard of this mythical creature called dragons. And this one doesn't have wings. So obviously, this is not a dragon. And I don't know what comes, uh, you know... What happens to her? She just tells it, Stop trying and die peacefully. You're
1: dead. And then it and, plunges on her. Oh
0: yeah, that would yeah, tell me the quote, yeah.
1: Um You're dead, your head has been torn away. The vater dissolves your flesh. It is time to end your struggles. Yeah. And then it jumps on her.
0: Yeah, obviously it gets pissed off. Like <laughs> so it uh, cuts down her horse and then it you know it's not able to move further. Finara is thrown from her horse and she ends up breaking a shoulder and she has a hust sword. One more time we are told that this is a silent hust sword from the pre-awakening era. Mm. More to come. I think maybe this is important. We don't know. Maybe. So, who knows? So, and then she starts retreating and mm. see she starts walking. So the rest of this chapter is people moving from one place to another and thinking. One place to another, coming back, thinking. This is what this is the rest of the chapter, right? So be prepared. And now, as she's walking, she notices the animals and we're told that the animals in this area, because of this black grass, they all have scales, even like deer, even boars. Everything has uh, scales and they all, their big enemy there is something called the naked wolves. No idea. They are the ones who will attack them. So, she has to be careful. So, uh, as she's walking, because it's dark, she thinks of a tie of legends which say that at one time, night was absolute. (coughs) And earth and stone were just like promises of potential. And it needed the kiss of chaos to bring life. So darkness imposed order on chaos. And that that is how life was born. And then the realm got divided into light versus dark. And they're constantly warring with each other. And that is life. But yeah, Finara is not able to understand things like this. Like how can there be nothing before darkness? Then doesn't that mean that creation is like one instant? Either it's done already or it is going on simultaneously, eternally. So she goes on into these thoughts and then finally she decides uh, i'm not going to st- i'm going to stop here because she finds she has seen unrelieved darkness and she has found it frightening she has seen the heart of fire and light and she has flinched from it so what does she prefer she prefers to be between the two in cool indifferent shadows i don't think this is important right i don't think no. so yeah no. she not. just likes shadows for some reason right and she remembers her uh, you know uh, when she met mother dark when she had to like Oh, that she's joining the wardens and she felt the seduction to just surrender everything but you know the only thing stopping her was her remembering that Mother Dark was once a mortal, ticed woman. I think this is when we start getting some backstory. What? Are you a shock? That's your fake shock. Okay. So we start finding out that Mother Dark was once mortal just a ticed, almost Finara's age and now she wonders why her people have become like so superstitious that they're calling her goddess and they're saying that she is the elemental force now. So she knows that these are prisoners' thoughts, but she doesn't care. And she knows that faith and governance cannot be separated. It's just the currency is different, but they're all the same. If you disobey, it is at peril to... Do you have something to say? You can interrupt No, you. no, no.
1: Carry on. Carry on.
0: That if you disobey, you ha- it is at peril to life or liberty or freedom or something. I, I can almost hear you saying some response, but yeah. I. So let you. fucking close. So briefly put, she just concludes that uh, rule my flesh, rule my soul. And she doesn't care what philosophers, scholars, or even poets say. All they do is try to distract the populace because, you know, it's only the currency which is changing between faith and governance. As she's thinking, what happens? She's suddenly attacked by something.
1: She gets launched, yeah. (laughs) This happens quite a bit in this chapter, (laughs) especially. People are thinking and then like suddenly something happens and they just almost (laughs) die.
0: Yeah, uh, and now we cut scene to Farrah and then who can hear her uh, cries at their campfire. So she, she tells him, let you build the fire and wait here. I'll go ride out and bring back our captain. And Spinnock says, oh, I don't want to lose you, cousin, or something. And she replies that, you know, you have many cousins. <laughs> a bit harsher than, you know. Than Which what is, she yeah,
1: invented. a very weird answer without context for Spinnock.
0: I mean, they both know what they're talking. It's just, it's ticed flirting, get with it. So then she starts riding. And now, what do we do when somebody is riding somewhere? We go I into think. internal monologues. <laughs> so, who is Farah uh, and engaged to? Any guesses? Do How I do
1: have to? Be? Doesn't it say the name?
0: Oh, it says, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, then I don't need to guess.
0: Right, like, so she's married to, uh, she's en- engaged to Kagamander Tulas. into a shot. So, this guy, he used to be a low born officer in the Legion. And he's not particularly good looking because the ties are racist against wrinkles. So
1: no, no, it's, it's not that. It's for the same reason I was scars, because they starved yeah, all the way back. Yeah, exactly,
0: that's what I'm saying. So Hunger and suffering has made him wrinkle. and these people hate him. And they think he's a husk of a person who can't love anyone and, and all that. It's, it's extremely... Uh, what, what do you call that? I don't know. Okay, so he is a low-born officer, but during the battle, during the wars, he has saved Silkus' life. And so Mother Duck herself has elevated his status. And now, as a gift, he's been betrothed to the Durav house, which is a greater house. And Pharaoh is part of his reward. It's just, it's just, yeah, I don't have anything to say there. Uh, But then she believes that he's incapable of love. And, but you know, being beautiful, she tries her best to remember his name. And uh, remember his face, sorry. And whose face does she keep seeing? Spanark. Obviously. (laughs) Anyway, she reaches this place where, you know, there are some dead wolves uh, in Next to the grass. And she f- starts following the trail. The trail is like you know completely filled with blood and gore. And she knows that at the end of it there could be uh, Finara's dead body. Surrounded by at least 50 wolves feasting on her. But still she is almost ready to follow. Her only regrets. What are her only two regrets? She didn't worries...
1: shag Spinock.
0: No. Not everyone is thinking the same thing. She just okay. worries that Spinock is all alone in the camp. And she worries that Kagamandra will have to pretend to mourn her. I don't know why she has to, like, say Jesus. that he has to pretend.
1: People were dicks too last month.
0: I know. So, anyway, she's just about to enter this trail. And that's when Finara calls out from behind. Because she is not exactly in that trail. Something else has gone in the trail. And we see that apart from the broken shoulder, she has a bite injury on her leg. Okay? And she tells her that something has walked out of the sea. Not crawled. Something has walked out. And then they see that there are some small footprints filled with witter moving from the sea into the grass, into the trail, right? And she scolds Farrah that, have I taught you nothing? But you're going to just follow the trail just to find my dead body and just, you know, just die in the process. And then they decide, decide that they have to follow this, whichever creature has come out of the winter, but first they will go back to the camp and rest for some time. So they're going back to the camp. What happens?
1: Finara, well, no, Finara is dying of, like, infection, and so they're thinking.
0: Yeah, Finara is thinking now. Finara is... <clears throat> I'm not doing justice to this chapter. <laughs> so anyway, Finara is thinking, she has noticed that Farrahend had this death wish on her face. And she thinks that it is actually like a ticed flaw that all of them have this lust for death if they're despairing for some reason. you have something there?
1: No, no, just, you
0: know. <clears throat> <laughs> okay. Just non-verbal reactions, right? So, and uh, Finara is able to guess at Farrahend's conflict that, you know... Uh, she has some thoughts about Spinach, who is very good looking. He's being pursued by men and women from a very young age. Christ almighty. <laughs> and you keep saying Rake gets all the girls. It's not Rake. It's Spinach. Yeah, I
1: mean, it, it's not even a joke anymore. It's like actually canon that like everybody lusts after Spinach the Rogue. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. So and Spinach, even though he's uh, you know he's so popular, he has a good sense of self-preservation. Like. He's, he's never, yeah, he's like, he doesn't like give himself away to anyone who just wants him. But even then, she has noticed that he actually likes Farrell. You know, he adores her and maybe more. And then she sees that these two, Farrell and Spinnaker, they're both, I, I don't know why I'm laughing at this, but my notes say that she sees them both torturing themselves endlessly. And if this continues, I, <clears throat> there's nothing funny here. And she thinks that their life and even their love, everything might soar if they're you know left to torture themselves like this. So, what does she decide? Yeah?
1: So, she just also just casually by the way, side note, she is dying of a broken shoulder and an infected bite wound. Uh, she casually mentions that the Legion used to torture people uh-huh. because that's how oh, she yeah, knows that... these things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just
1: casually. And also, uh, she, yeah, um, this is how she views her underlings. It's like their cousins that are trying to bang one another but like that's like equivalent to torture because no, there can they never don't... be love
0: oh no 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 no! you're not getting it it's not she's not you're saying not that it? they're trying to bang each other they're like trying not to bang each other and that is right. the torture yeah that's, there's a difference there <clears throat> so yeah uh, so what does she decide she decides that she has to reassign one of them to somewhere far away
1: oh, i thought she was gonna play matchmaker she's,
0: she, she's being good to Tulas. Why are you laughing at that? So anyway, there is nothing funny happening here. No, no, yeah, yeah, go on. Okay, and she knows that, you know, even if they're separated, there is possibility that a torture of this kind, you know, can absence makes the heart grow fonder. So it is possible that their torture could keep continuing and they may even become more strengthened that way and they may be more attracted because they're not proximate to each other. So anyway, and then she has a private thought which she doesn't tell us. We just know that it is slightly selfish. Any guesses? We're not going to guess, right? So anyway, now... I um, don't remember. Oh, they don't spell it out. Probably she just wants to bang Spinnacle. Either <laughs> of them. But that, That's how I took it.
1: I was going to say that, and like, there's no way she's that shallow.
0: <laughs> she's dying. She might as well get a good one in. And... <laughs> okay. Smiley's I...
1: podcast, everyone.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um... So now, finally, she decides that they are far enough away from the shore and they can ride the horse back. And as she is uh, getting on top of the horse, she murmurs that spinnaker is too young; there are responsibilities, and <laughs> the wit is the, the wit is the case, kiss of chaos against which they have to guard themselves, right? And then she almost passes out. So now, because she's passing out, we can't follow her thoughts. So what do we do? We follow Farrenet's POV. What is Shwara
1: doing?
0: What is she doing? She's riding back to camp.
1: And thinking.
0: And thinking there is this woman sagging over me. And yeah, go on. You had something to say. No,
1: no, no, no. (laughs) Please go on.
0: Yeah, she's thinking that this um, uh, Finara stone has a very, I don't know. Why why does it matter? But she thinks that it is almost like a man, a body hard and wiry, twisted like rope. And though Finara has this habit of being too shy to make eye contact, she had stared really hard when she found out that Farah was about to follow the trail. And she knows that she has seen something of her feelings. <clears throat> and then uh, she keeps thinking of this thing which has come from the sea. And by the time they reach the camp and they start treating Finara's wounds. Okay? And mm-hmm. now it's morning and Finara still has fever and she needs more attention. So Spinnak offers to take her back to their outpost. And Pharaoh decides that she will go look for this thing which walked out of the sea. And Pharaoh suppresses all emotions when Spinnock leaves, right? It's just a very quick and official goodbye.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, she has to go back to the trail. <clears throat> she has to ride back. What does she do? She thinks.
1: She thinks. Yeah.
0: She thinks. Yeah. What does she think? She thinks that life is a crossing of unknown trails. And you, know, you only know where a path leads by taking it. But that also means you have to surrender the path you are on. Should I ditch my fiancé? This is what she's thinking, basically. <laughs> anyway, she finds the trail. Okay,
1: I thought that was actually going to be deep, but they just, like, dropped that on me. Like, okay, well, I shouldn't name have expected name, as name, much.
0: But, you know, this is the moment she has, like, set by a very hard by to Spindak, like, trying not to think about what it means. And she's going back. She might die. Who knows? So this is what she's thinking. Anyway, she finds the trail. And as she's following, it's a trail of dead wolves, basically. All the wolves have been cut down. And the trail seems to be leading straight south, straight to Carpenter's. Okay, and by the time she finds who's causing all this death and destruction, it's late afternoon and the light seems a molten gold color, which she has not really seen before. And changes are coming to this world. So who does she catch up with? There is a fair-skinned, blonde, naked woman who is wearing a scaled wolf hide on her shoulders. Her hair is roughly (coughs) hacked, though she doesn't carry any visible blades. This is a big mystery for me. I think I've told you this. It's an later. Am... Is it? Okay. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Anyway, uh, Farrah asks her if uh, she's Azathanai. This woman has a strange language and she doesn't seem to remember anything, except that she replies that Azatani, the word has a, a, it's a bigger phrase and it means that people who were never born. Okay. She doesn't know her name. So Farrah names her Triss. Okay. Just for our listeners, do you want to tell me the difference between Triss, Dris, Drek? All the similar sounding so, words. Driss
1: is the queen of dreams, Driss is the warren of the earth, and Drek is the warmer bottom.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, thank you. anyway, uh, they decide that uh, she will be taken to Karkanas to meet Mother Dark, and Triss finds the name somewhat funny. That, oh, is she, is she called Mother Dark or something? Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, before you go on, I should note that uh, the language which Driss uses, despite pretty clearly being a Zathani, uh she says, <clears throat> Azat Drevlid Natar Azathani, the people who were never born and Faror does not recognize the language and Faror Knows how Azathani sounds and that is not Azathani. So Trace is using some language Which is not Azathani or Taist or anything Forlken or something of the like.
0: Oh, just oh. throwing that out there. Okay. Okay. I did not notice that So anyway, they have to go to Karkaras And so she weaves a horse and some clothes and armor and everything with grass and makes one similar to Farrar, and so they start riding. Thankfully, we're not following their POVs there. We go so back. They're
1: not thinking anymore.
0: Maybe. Maybe they're not. They yeah. think a but lot
1: more th- in future travers.
0: So. so we'll go away from Glimmer Fate. We are going towards Neret, Neret Sore. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we switch to a small group, okay, which are also heading. They have left oh, from there. They're left yeah, from there right, right, and they're right, heading right, towards right, the same right. outpost. I
1: forgot that wasn't the same traver. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: Oh, <laughs> anyway, they are going to meet the warden commander, who is called
1: Khaled
0: Hussein. So,
1: Incidentally, also son of Hashtanarald, and I'm noticing a bit of um, nepotism, nepotism here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we've yeah. been told nepotism from chapter one. So, any further comments on the Thais society, we can keep it for part two. So anyway, the group is led by, you say Hunral, so I'm also going to start saying that. The group is led by Hunral and Osir. Mm-hmm. I say Hanral. We should
1: and ask Steve for next time.
0: What what does Steve say? We I don't
1: know. That's <laughs> why we didn't ask <laughs> last time.
0: Yeah. So we have uh, the first POV is from Sharinas Ankadu. How do you say it?
1: Sharinas.
0: Sharinas. Oh Sharinas sounds very nice. Yeah. Sharinas Ankhadu. Does it sound familiar? Maybe. She's part of a trio of Legion captains who are calling themselves sisters in spirit. Probably two of them are sisters and one is a cousin. The names of the other two are Infayan Menand and Teth Lorat. Absolutely unfamiliar names. We've never heard. Sharina Sankharu, Infayan Menand and Teth Lorat. Because I am so dumb. I never really put these together till it happened. So I'm just going to keep really? stressing on these names. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: I have to actually tell someone that Infayan is not actually Menandur. Because, yeah. <laughs>
0: Right. So, Sharinas, Sherin, Ankadu, in fine and Tethel, right? The other two are missing. So, we have only Sharinas here. And she has an amazing POV. I really like it. She is a veteran of the jalarkat campaigns. And she hates the cold. She likes the sun because she doesn't burn. And she tans. Yeah. So, she likes the golden evening sun and all that. Okay. She is riding with uh, Osark, Hunral, Ilga, Strend, and some three cousins of Unral and also Kagamandra, Tulas. Who is headed to this outpost because that's where his fiance is it's supposedly true. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, hundwal has three cousins serap Risp, and sevig if you have any comments here you can say it now no no yeah okay. nothing okay yet. nothing here yeah absolutely so these guys have left neret like three days back because hundwal is basically gathering a small troop of people to visit the warden's outpost and to find out which side they're going to support so he has asked uh, Ilgas to accompany them, and Ilgaz has only one question in reply. He wanted to know if Ursander knows this is happening. Uh, Hundral is about to evade the question, and Osirk, being Osirk, says, Yes, my father knows what we're doing. Now, totally. who will continue with Sharina's thinking? She knows that Hundral is doing the right thing. As long as they all focus on Ursander, their claim for justice will be answered. She doesn't have a high opinion on Osirk, who is thin skinned and diffident, but still, you know, is... He, Nobody likes him, poor guy. But he's being held in check by Hunra, so everyone knows that Hun is doing a good uh, good job. She also knows that this guy is banging his three cousins, and she judges him for it.
1: Second <clears> cousins, <throat> so it's technically not bad. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: From prescriptions, yeah. So he can do that. Re- he can do that legally. Now, questionably, morally, is a bit questionable, but yeah.
0: Right. Thais. What can you say? So. Uh Sherinas thinks that maybe she also should sleep with Hunral one day, but only if it is politically useful. And it's 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 a bit gross, but what she thinks is that Yeah, what is that?
1: Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying, you know, diced, you know.
0: Dice. Fun. Ah, oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, we just uh bang each other for political gain. Fun.
0: I mean they're getting married for political gain, why not? This? Yeah. So anyway, Hunral is uh, because this is her logic that he's growing in importance. And he's very arrogant. But his arrogance is warring with his sense of loyalty to Urusander. So maybe someone needs to bring him down a notch. And to do this, she has to lead him to believe that he has won a conquest to his bed. And then tell him that, you know, he, he was manipulated by her. And so, you know, to belittle him. Because that is a very vulnerable time. She's gross. So this is what she's thinking. And then she starts thinking about Kagamandra Tulas, who is also riding along with her. If you have comments, you can just stop me.
1: no. no. And then
0: she's, uh, yeah, she's even more judgmental towards him. Once again, she thinks that he's, nobody likes Kagamandra, basically. She thinks he's an empty husk, his Mm. eyes are lifeless, he's dead inside, and he probably longs for real death. (laughs) And then she feels bad for Hen because basically what the Legion guys want is a new world in which there should not be any of these greater houses and lesser houses. The only thing that should count is service to the realm. Right? And in such a world, this type of politically expedient marriages will not be needed. But to <laughs> ensure this parity, Farrar is like the, you know, faror has to be sacrificed. She has to be married off in this politically expedient manner to prevent other marriages which will be politically expedient, which makes zero sense, obviously. The thing is, Kagamandra, because of his new elevated position, he is expected to be Uri Sandhya's right hand. So he might officiate like the wedding of Uri Sandhya and Mother Dark. And thinks that maybe she should sleep with Kagamandra, maybe. It might be a sweet victory, but then she can't sully him. She thinks that maybe he cannot really be reached. So who is left for her to bank? Farrer Hand. She thinks that maybe she... <laughs> and now she, you know, thinks more, and maybe Farrar has ditched... Uh, she's joined the wardens just to escape Kagamandra. And he is still pursuing her here and he is going to meet her there. And so she decides among two meetings, among two important meetings, either Hunral meeting Khaled Hustain or Kagamaratulas meeting his fiance. She decides that she will go to the second meeting. And then once Farah is left reeling and she is feeling vulnerable, that's when she will seduce her. Sherina Sharinasankaru. Finally, we are done with her. And we go to Stren, The yeah, my favorite. <coughs> so this guy is an old retired veteran. You have something to tell? Please do.
1: So, Sharina's is another example of uh, we were this fucking close and we blew it. <clears throat> Though, Sharina's is also a bit, you know... <laughs> but yeah, the the bit about the Legion being for veteran reconstitution and, like, reform in society, except when it isn't in the case of Arrow, it's like, this close and then we blew it again. No, and no gas piece... does it again and it just infuriates me.
0: No, the, I, I think uh, the, one of the differences between the monologues we see in, um, what do you call it, in Book of the Fallen and here, all these philosophy uh, thoughts people have, is in, uh, in Book of the Fallen, they are given space and time to have a conclusion to their natural thought. Here, it's not like that. They are, they're very flighty, the ties. They're not able to complete their thoughts. They're distracted by the things going on around them, you know, and they're being constantly attacked or, you know, suddenly they want to bank cousins and... They're flighty people. They don't have the time to complete their thoughts. Whereas in Book of the Fallen, it's a conscious decision. Everyone has the time to finish their entire thought. Isn't it? Don't you think so? There is a difference. And I think that's what you're finding odd here.
1: No, no, no. It's not like I'm finding it odd. I mean, like, they have a good thought and then they swap direction towards, like, an I say objectively, towards a, like, less good one. Like, we are for reform and reconstitution of the veterans and like a world where we promote a meritocracy and there's no like greater houses. Like, except when we don't because we need some greater houses to exist so we can actually perpetuate this thing. So it's like hypocrisy.
0: And then and then she or gets for
1: Finara like, Finara having a moment like um where she thinks about the dark and then she concludes that like faith cannot be separated from government, which is just like this close, god damn it! But I'll bitch on <laughs> later, so it's, it's okay. We, we have we finish, one more we'll, to go through we'll with Ilga's friend, where yeah. I just get really annoyed. So,
0: and so Il- Ilga's friend has a lot of prudish thoughts because we just saw yeah. Sharina's thirsting over everyone. So we need some balance. <laughs> <clears throat> he thinks he calls this a time for frenzied seed spilling among the thighs. So even he uses very
1: and, vulgar language. That's he true. Uses,
0: yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say all of that. But anyway, he says. <laughs> Even Mother Dark has taken a lover and is this is why veterans like him went to fight wars. Then he thinks about Uru Sander, who was a great war leader, but peace does not suit him. He, as a ruler, he would be indifferent and very just and because he would be so impartial, he might lose supporters like Hunral. And he worries that if Uru Sander's power grows, then blood will be spilled. So Uru would be glad to be rid of an outsider like Draconis, but the houseplates of the great greater houses would also resist Uru Sander because he is from the ranks. But still they would guess that, you know, somebody like Hunral has brutal ambition and they might take offense to that. Anyway, he is noble born, but he's also a cohort commander retired. So he's on either side or on both sides. He has been feeling a pull to choose from the legion side, but now he worries that he might be pushed to make a choice. What is pushing him? His prudishness, basically. So why should this mother dark take a consort? Why can't she just marry him? Why is his cult of dark so given to sexual excesses? How can sexual satisfaction and religious ecstasy be the same? I'm not using that language, no. And then, Mother Dak, uh, why is she inviting this kind of sordidness? Like, instead of. What? Go on, go on.
1: No, 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 no. Please continue.
0: <laughs> like, instead of superior traits like reason and skepticism, why is she inviting this type of sordid thoughts? So, he would not yoke himself to someone else's idea of truth. And these are not the. But these are not the reasons he's in shadow, right? Because these are just my favorite quote of this this episode. These are just opinions and not fortifications, okay? But he's uh, agreed to join this group because he wants to see Khaled Hustain, who's an old friend. And he knows for sure that Khaled is not going to be persuaded by Hunral. All he wants is a drink and a chat. Who doesn't? So he thinks that sooner or later somebody is going to slit Hunral's throat. <coughs> Urisander should be left alone with his intellectual masturbation. And Mother Dark might suddenly lose interest with Draconis one day or the other. And since her aspect is endless night, maybe she would just vanish within it. And so there might not even be any physical relationships going on. But he also remembers Mother Dark before her ascension. He knows her birth name and how she was a (coughs) vivacious, beautiful young woman with strengths and frailties. Just like any other woman. Till the day she found the gate to darkness. And he thinks that darkness itself is something which is fundamentally selfish. So, anyway, they're near the outpost, and he thinks that the wardens are a bunch of misfits. But even misfits in a good society need a place to thrive. They should not be abandoned to alleys and gutters. Misfits must be cherished. Why? It's not a good thought. Misfits must be cherished because one day they might be useful. So, with this happy See? thought, we you can fucking cover this blew it chapter. again. This close, goddammit. <clears throat> I think we should wind up. This episode has gone too long. So
1: annoyed at this guy, actually.
0: I'm not annoyed because he's that one quote. These are opinions and not fortifications is extremely good. I, I really like that. He's not like
1: yeah, he's not vehement in his opinion, yeah. but it's still like this goddamn and if we just thought about it a bit more,
0: hmm. it's fuck. That that's the whole point. That this is what we're seeing repeatedly in Forge of Darkness. People get I distracted. know that's the
1: point. I'm still going to oh, be yes. angry at them for missing the yeah. bloody point. Okay.
0: Okay. The point is to get you riled up and you're doing that. So I okay. think I think that's good. Let's just wind up. Let's go to the discussion. This has gone on too long. Yeah. Anything else? Any any closing thoughts? Who was your favorite among these two chapters? Favorite character?
1: Oh, uh, character? I don't know. Fenara's very interesting.
0: Yeah. Finara, that was good.
1: Um, Sharina's is surprisingly thirsty. Yeah. Like, shockingly thirsty. I would like Elgas a lot more if we didn't blow it twice. In <laughs> like No. Um, no, yeah, it was twice. The, the other one was like about intellectual masturbation was fine, whatever. Um,
0: his whole section was fun, regardless of where he went with his yes, thoughts. It was, like, was really fun to read.
1: God damn it, dude. Yeah, like, the, okay, it's no, no, people just like... tell
0: me the character and then we're moving on. <clears throat> My favorite was How the Jagged. I, 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 yeah, I can see
1: that. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Who else? The, these are all the nice. Yeah. yeah. Is nice. Yeah. Your boy. Okay. So, <laughs> thank you for listening. And we will have the discussion of these two chapters in the next episode. And after this, what will be the next? The chapters five and six.
1: Chapter five and six, yeah.
0: What do we have to look forward to in chapters five and six? More POVs, more thirst.
1: More people thinking. Um, more people thinking, yeah. Five, chapter five is mostly arithmetic, which five, is a lot of thinking.
0: No, at least in five onwards, we start seeing uh, the setup things are over. Yeah. These four chapters have things been Things actually so start happening. Yeah. Start happening, but, yeah. And so, chapter five is very tight, yeah. So anyway, let's. We'll see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Lee, for your time. Thank you, Mara. Bye. Goodbye.